Welcome to Color Me Dead. This is a true crime podcast, and we talk about murder and fuckery most foul in detail while using the darkest of humor. If you don't like words like fuck and cunt, then you probably shouldn't listen. But if you do, then join us while we fuck your feelings. So, welcome back, everybody, to episode 104. I had to look. I'm like, I don't know. One of them. One damn episodes? Uh, uh, episode. Uh, episode. But this is part three, and I am going to try very hard to wrap this up in five parts. I And the only reason that it's going to be five is because I wanted to do the follow-up on David into his uh, adulthood. Mm-hmm. And not that that's true crime, and not that a lot of people care, but... We like the story, the whole story, and all the way through the story. So help us God. Yes. <clears throat> raise so, your right hand. I forgot which one was right there for a second. I did too. I almost raised my left. Not I, that anyone can see us and wouldn't know, I know nobody, otherwise. Nobody would ever know how fucking retarded we are. But hey. So we are. Is, <laughs> but we are. So there's that. Just assume that. Put, put that in your ass and smoke it. Yes. All right. So, before we get started today on David Part 3, we had ourselves a little meme competition on our group page, and the winner, Chicken Dinner, was getting themselves a free pair of studios. Yes, they are. Well, we went through, we put everybody's name on a little post-it, we threw it in a hat, shook it up, and drew names, and congratulations to Brad Hyatt and Corey Osborne, because they are the winners of the participating award, and the award is a pair of studios. Yay! Yay, you! So, Brad already sent in his address. Corey, we're going to need you to PM yours. We will put those fuckers in the mail. She really doesn't have to, because I have it. Oh, do you? I stalk her on a regular basis. Or she's a Patreon, so I already have it. <laughs> well, that... <coughs> is she really? Oh, that's right, she yeah. is. Thank you for also being a Patreon. I didn't think about that until we already started talking about it. And I was like, wait, hold, please. We have that. I forget whose addresses I have and don't have. The only one that I think I might use <laughs> to fuck with somebody. You're getting like evil fingers. I know. Is <laughs> <laughs> Rhett, because I know Rhett personally, and I we can. has the Rhett's address, because I just sent him some shit not too long ago. So I'm just saying that that one I'm allowed to. I've known him since we were in fucking seventh grade. Yeesh. Show. Hi, Rhett. So we'll start there. Thanks for everybody that donates to our Patreon, including Sharon Hoffman, Rhett Harris, and Melissa Morgan. Thank you. Thank you. Well, so if you want to donate to our Patreon and help us get new equipment that we apparently need so desperately, um, you can do so at ageofradio.org slash colormedad, or you can check us out at Patreon. And we pre-apologize for any weird noises. We're having issues again. Do you want to find us on social media? I'm sure you do. Twitter, Color Me Dead Pod. Facebook, we have the Color Me Dead podcast page. We also have the Color Me Dead Facebook group. Um, And Instagram. If you'd like to find us on Instagram, it's Color Me Dead Podcast. And you can find me at uh, Color Me Dead Angel and Nikki at Gory underscore Nikki. All right. So the book that we used to complete these episodes is called David, and that was written by his mother, Marie Rothenberg, and uh, Mel White. 
If you guys want to pick up some new merch, you can go to callingmedeadpod.threadless.com. We have a shit ton of new designs that have been thrown up there. We've got friends um, who have helped us put these together. We have Legras. Legras. Yeast that came up with the fuck mouth make words. Fuck mouth make words. And then we also have Nicole and her adorable boyfriend that put together... Huh? Kelly. That put together these awesome images for us to make merch out of. So go, get the merch. I cannot wait to order. You know that blanket that I carry everywhere? It's yeah. getting a little raggy. Raggy? I'm order a new one. Raggedy, raggy. <laughs> F- fucked up. It's, get, it's all fucked up. It's fucked up. Well, I, I want to get the big hand, the red hand that says Color Me Dead podcast. I need new hoodies for next year. Um, we might be traveling a lot in the upcoming months. I fucking hope so. And we'll tell you more about that later. There's irons in the fire, and we're keeping a lot of this on the DL. Nobody gets to know for a while, but we just might be. Know. Just know that Color Me Dead might be doing a lot of traveling here in the next little while, and we're very excited about it. And that being said, I am going to need a Sherpa Whoopie. To not only promote the pod, but for traveling purposes. And also, I have to have new hoodies. And one hoodie got lost at Disneyland, and one hoodie got lost in the backseat of a car of a person. <clears throat> so anyway, new hoodies for Angel. Maybe a new wubby. Maybe a pillow. Maybe a pillowcase. Quick recap. Um, David has now been taken to Irvine Medical following his kerosene-soaked blast at the Buena Park Holiday Inn. 90% of his body is third-degree burns. Marie got a telegram from Charles from Western Union stating that he had killed himself and that David had been in an accident. Well, Charles did not kill himself. Oh. Himstead. Himself. He did not kill himself. Instead, he took off to San Francisco. Um, we are now to Dr. Bruce Ockhauer and his intensive burn unit team at UCI. We're now working around the clock to save a uh, charred six-year-old that they were referring to as John Doe. Now, friends and co-workers had filled Marie's office in, the Ma- in Manhattan and listened as she spoke with Detective Alice Lauder. At Buena Park. Wow, that was a really loud mouth noise. Sorry about that. (laughs) Fuck. Could you tone that the fuck down? Anyway, they were all standing around in her office hoping to get some good news. And they were clinging to any news that this little brown-eyed boy was actually going to turn out to be David. Well, Detective Alice Lauder from Buena Park had advised Marie that there was an unidentified boy at Irvine Medical. Now, Marie began pressing for any information about this boy and wanted to know, like, um, you know, is it my son? Why don't you ask his dad? You know, why do you not know that it's my son? And it was one of those situations where... um, the detective and the doctors are trying to keep her nice and mellow. And she's like, well, what the... So it was a a situation where Marie is pressing and pressing for information. And every time she's asking the doctor, she's asking this detective, they're saying, I don't know. And she wants to know, like, why the hell don't you know whether or not it's my son? Like, can't I send you a photo of him? Don't you you know where his dad is? Ask Ask his dad. And that's, 
That's kind of where the detective, you know, furthered the situation, furthered the conversation with Marie. And she's like, I can't ask his dad. David's alone. And his father wasn't with him at any point. And Marie was asked to verify the age of her son. They said, okay, well, we have a six to seven year old. And she said, yes, David, Davy. Ask him if his name is David. So at that moment, followed a, you know, following a silence on the phone, she's struggling. Maria is now struggling to understand, like, why couldn't you just go in the room and ask him what his name was? Right. That would make sense. Go ask him if his name is David Rothenberg. He's six, seven years old. He knows his name. Right. So it it's one of those situations where I could understand a frustration, uh, a mother's frustration coming from New York. She's talking to a bunch of adults in California and you're like, what the fuck? Are you all just like ignorant as shit? Go ask him his name. Are you ignorant? Are you ignorant? Well, that would make sense, you know, in most situations, except her son can't speak right now. Um so she's 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 on the struggle bus a little bit. She doesn't understand why they simply can't walk in and ask the kid his name. Now, the office had gone completely silent with the phone, and Marie's just sitting there. I mean, she's trembling. She's got the phone in her hand, and she's waiting. And she said it felt as though she had been waiting an eternity. She couldn't imagine that her child would be lying there 3,000 miles away, unable to speak, unable to even see at this point. Marie had gone on to say that she believed with all of her heart that the child that was lying in the burn unit in California wasn't David. That was her thing. This wasn't David. They had a different child. It was some sort of cruel joke. It was a vicious trick that Charles had played on her. Like, she had it in her mind that Charles had gone and abducted another kid. And that in a fit of anger, he had actually roasted somebody else's kid. And that he took David and, like, ran off to Mozambique with her fucking kid, right? Because she didn't want to stop and think about the fact that this might actually be her kid. Be her son so the they came back on onto the phone they said mrs rothenberg we think we have your boy here this might be david and this is the detective that's talking to her and as she continued mary's head is like swimming with a million voices and a million different ideas and before she could even really comprehend what like what was going on and what she was about to endure. Tickets had been purchased from LaGuardia to LA. Her boss sent down to the accounting department for $500 worth of traveler's checks. Um, the, uh, the gentleman's name is Walter Orlemans and he was actually like the personnel manager. He offered to fly to LA with Marie. And this is all the stuff that she can barely recall that took place in the office that day as she's now facing everybody in her office and they're like holy shit her kids in the fucking burn unit and there's no no news to tell other than this her friends and co-workers kept telling her it was going to be okay and that they were going to pray for her and they were wishing her good luck her flight was scheduled to leave new york in 40 minutes marie's sister had been called and notified of marie's departure Marie's fiance was found. All the while, Marie just responded automatically. Adrenaline. Mm -hmm. Adrenaline pumping roughly through her body, as you can fucking imagine. I bet she doesn't remember any of this. It's, I think that she could recall bits and pieces, but yeah. as far as putting together a cohesive story, 
She's like, no. I think this happened, and then I remember uh, that, and this, but nothing in between. I'm sure that they had to interview quite a few people to patch this all together. Oh, probably. Five hours and 15 minutes of flight time gave Marie too much time to swim in her fears. That sounds freaking horrible. Marie had started to convince herself of impossible things. Charles had stolen another child and put him in a room and burned another boy, but not David. If the child was burned so badly that they couldn't identify him, they were wrong. They thought it was David, but it couldn't be. Charles wouldn't burn David. So you think. Mm. Charles had run away with the real David. He loved his son too much to have him hurt so badly. Right? No. Right? I'm sure, like, five and a half hours, I can't even wrap my head around five and a half hours of not knowing what the fuck is going on with your kid. Right. It says, my kid, no, I it's No, it's, it's five hours of wondering just how fucked up your kid is. And then getting there, wondering, like, when you get there, what condition is he going to be in? Are you even going to recognize him? Like, you know It's what I'm one saying? thing for a complete stranger to be like, I think I have your kid. But I don't know. But I don't know. But it's quite another for you to walk into a room and look at something and be like, mm. I don't know. I don't know if that's my kid. That's, <clears throat> yeah. Ugh. Anyway, Marie and John arrived in LA and were met right away by detectives waiting to take them to the burn center. They were rushed past a slew of officers that had been guarding David. The police had been afraid, afraid that Charles was going to come back and finish the job he started. Charles was still out there somewhere. Marie and John had to be briefed on how to scrub, gown, and mask up to see David. The boy inside his room had the boy inside this room has been burned very seriously. He's been covered in an ointment and netting to protect him. He is very badly swollen and you probably won't recognize him even if it is your son. And I can I can tell you exactly what that stuff feels like. The ointment, it's like you're slathered up all the time, and then they put net on top of it and then wrap it on top of that. And you have to do it every time they take it off. It's mm-hmm. It actually kind of feels good because it's cold. I like the silvidine, though. Mm-hmm. Like that shit when I burned my hand, and they had to keep my fingers separated, and they would goo it up with silvidine and then wrap it mm-hmm. to keep the skin from, like, fusing. Eh. Well, and if I remember it, and I could very well be making this up in my head because I was nine, but they would put this ointment on and then the netting was kind of like um, silicone-y. Mm. Like mm-hmm. it was soft and, you know, mm-hmm. it didn't hurt. It felt good, but it kept everything from getting on it and sticking to it because if shit sticks to it, it is the fucking worst because mm-hmm. then it just takes off all the rest of your skin with it. What or whatever you have left because all of my scar that you can see is just the third degree part, like the second degree part, you uh-huh. know. So that was all well, we'll get into what it is later, but yeah, if something stuck to that, it was like, whoops, there goes the rest. Yeah, sorry, sorry about sorry that. about that. So when Marie and John actually entered the room, Marie gasped. And she's looking at this bundled of burned kid, and she's like, that's not David. And then she had that overwhelming sense of relief. Like, oh, whoo, got me. That ain't him. Uh. And John, actually, her fiancé, elbowed her. And she, she looks at him like, what? And he said, look close, Marie, that is David. 
And so she strains her eyes. She looks really close at this big blob of burned baby. His head was huge. And I'm talking like swollen three times the size that he should be. She had to look very closely at his mouth, the tiny shoulders, and that's when it struck her and she almost collapsed. David, can you hear mommy? Marie asked. David nodded slowly up and down. Ugh. She had to steady herself on her fiancé, John, gripping his arm tightly. She leaned in closer to the oozing child. Marie had assured David that he was going to be okay and that she and John were going to be there for him no matter what and they would stay by his side. In reality, all one had to do was take one close look at David to see how truly close to death he really was. No one was sure he was going to make it. There was going to be so much more, not just the physical scars that everybody would see, but the emotional ones too. The emotional scars that might consume David in the way the fire could not. Marie had tried to stay in the hospital that night, and the doctors assured her that there was nothing she could do for David, and that it was best that she retire for the day and get some rest. There were hard days ahead of her and David. Across the hall from where David was being cared for, the Buena Park Police Department had turned this room into like a makeshift command center. She met there with Detective Lauder and the other members of the police force who were working to catch Charles. So Marie wanted to know where he was, where Charles had run off to after, you know, where he's hiding after Mm -hmm. he had fucking burned his kid. So she goes in there. There's Sergeant Dick Halfdahl. (laughs) Sorry, Sergeant. (laughs) I can't with this. Sorry. Sergeant Hofdahl, we'll just say it that way, uh, met, Marie, met with Marie to tell her that Charles was still at large and that they really needed her help to find him. So she sits down and she looks over and she sees a sketch of a man on the wall. And she she asks him, well, who's that? And the officer looks confused because he looks at it and he goes like, that's Charles. Marie hits the motherfucking roof. Okay? <laughs> nope. She goes, that? That's nobody. That's not Charles. It's no wonder you can't find him. You're looking for the wrong man. So, okay, so this is what really fucks me up. And if you look at where I wrote this in my notes, it's all like in bold and underlined. Mm-hmm. Which, what the fuck? Because Charles did prison time in California. They didn't have a correct image of the man. Come on. Like, so you've got this sketch that people have put together in from whatever fashion they've gathered it from the hotels or whatever that he was at but you didn't have a proper photograph for fucking real i realized that this is the 80s and shit but come on do you not take mug shots when people even in the 80s just saying well mug shots were a thing california state prison yo Uh uh-huh Yeah, in your own goddamn state. State. It's not like you had to go get a a facsimile sent (laughs) of his picture. Right? (laughs) That was really shitty and grainy. Like, if this is your state, you can look it up. I get that, you know, it's not like it is now where you can just text a picture over and be like, is this him? Yes, it's him. Okay, cool. Right. But But still, he did fucking prison time in your state. One would like to think that you guys can at least fucking... Somebody could go drive 
to whatever county that was and to, maybe or to just, the state prison and be like can i see his files i'd like to see the picture maybe i'm just so far up my own ass because i've forgotten just how disconnected tech like technology right. was in the 80s but fucking a so anyway she's deeply upset at this point because she's looking at this fucking sketch and she's like yeah you're looking for the wrong man well they were able to calm her down when they told her that sandra Marie's sister had been contacted and they had found proper photos of Charles and they were on their way. Now, Sandra wanted to deliver these herself. So the New York had a black and white, they had a black and white booking photo of Charles that had been taken in 1978 when he was actually arrested for check forgery. So the local police, sirens and lights going, rush a copy of the photo to Sandra, then escorted her to the airport where she flew to California to deliver that photo right into the hands of Buena Park police. The police had designed this lineup, right? So they put together five people. Charles was number three in the display and the others were like non-suspects. Okay. So they would take this lineup to the motel clerks at three different motels and they all identified him to be Charles. One of the clerks had mentioned that Charles asked many times where he could take David to entertain him while the rain was still pouring in California. Charles had offered information to the clerks that was uninvited. He spoke about what a vicious place Brooklyn was and about his ex-wife and her cop boyfriend. Charles had ranted that he... (laughs) Dude, he's literally that guy. Right. He's that customer where you're just like, yo, I don't give a fuck. Here's your room key. I gave it to you (laughs) 10 minutes ago. There are no fucks left to give. Back the fuck off. Enjoy your stay in California, sir. And you have a... Get the hell out of my lobby. go. I don't fucking care about your ex-wife or her cop boyfriend. Yeah, no, seriously. What I care about is you getting out of my face and going to your room (laughs) and not talking to me anymore. That's what I care about. Okay. He was was that guy. Yeah. I... uh, uh, Fuck you, Charles. I don't like you. Anyway, he was... He ranted, and I lost my place. Charles had ranted that he and Marie would probably still be together if they had just stayed in California. Well, you're the one that moved, you guys, you dumb fuck. When Charles had checked out of the hotel, the clerk asked about David, as he wasn't with Charles, and he told the clerk that David was terminally ill and didn't have long to live. For whatever reason, only Charles knows... There was a third room rented that the police found out about. They had staked out the room, hoping that Charles would return to it, but he never did. In the room, police found the new suitcase, Davy's clothes, and schoolwork, and some toys. Yeah. The police had several photos of Charles now, and one was of him and Davy on Santa's lap at Christmas, which fucking freaks me out. Why is Charles on Santa's lap? I don't like it. I like I don't not 100% sure I don't know if I read that wrong where it's like it's the picture of him of Charles and David's on Santa's lap or if both of them are because at this point I would the way that I read it it actually sounded like they were both sitting on Santa's lap so I'm not 100% sure on that poor Santa oh (laughs) Um, everyone interviewed by the BPPD said they appeared to be a perfect loving father-son duo this terrified Marie she broke down into tears because she was afraid that Charles could could be waiting outside of the hospital to finish the job what if Charles was out there waiting to kill her or John there could be no predicting what Charles was capable of at this point Sergeant Haftel assured Marie the police had taken many precautions 
to secure not only David, uh-huh. but her and John as well. Correct. There were armed guards at every entrance of the hospital. There were police stationed outside of David's door. The hotel where John and Marie were staying were under, and they were under false names at said hotel. And the hotel was also secured with armed guards. There were not... They were not going to take any chances with the family's safety. Sergeant Haftel was able to calm Marie's fears, but insisted that she was going to have to help them find Charles to bring him to justice. The police were very certain that Charles was nowhere near Buena Park and that they had reason to believe that he was still residing in San Francisco, where he was last known to have been since Charles Love flew to San Francisco. The police had found the hardware store where Charles had purchased the kerosene, and in that store, they had been able to identify the man as Charles. They had the hotel bills from three different establishments, and they had traced the white rental car, too. So the police knew that he was in San Francisco. They knew that the rental car attendant had taken him to John Wayne Airport. They also knew that he flew on Air Cal on a standby ticket, and that he put it under the name Charles Love. What a fucking douchebag. Think of something else. Nobody loves you, you stupid fuck. Well, that's just, I don't know. That's some Rodney Al... That's some Rodney uh-huh. Alcala stuff, dude. Same Trump. area, same time. Fuck, dude. Ish. Ish. So, but now, where in San Francisco was he? This is where Marie's help would be imperative. She knew where her ex-husband's old haunts were and where his hideouts were. She knew where he would be, what his patterns were. Now, the questions kept coming up, but Marie had only been focused on her child across the hall fighting for his life. She mumbled a few words. Obviously, she was not in any condition mentally or emotionally to really think of any answers that were going to help him out. Following the attempted murder of David, Charles also seemed very obsessed with David's condition. Here's where shit takes a turn for the fucking weird, okay? Now... He had actually called the burn unit, we're talking about Charles, called the burn unit and the Buena Park Police Department several times inquiring about David. Now, he would sometimes pretend to be a concerned citizen. Other times he would say that he was a paramedic or a firefighter. And then, get this, he would actually admit to Sergeant Hoftal that he was, in fact, Charles. All right, you got me. Okay, fuck it, I suppose. Now, each of these calls, there was like at least six times that he called the police and he admitted who he was. And he would actually have these like really long conversations with Sergeant Hoftal. Each of these conversations were recorded and it was like this dark, twisted journal, like a, like a testament to a chart, like to words. <laughs> a dark, twisted testament to Charles' concern for his son, even though all of this damage was at the fucking hands of Charles. Of him. Now, in these conversations, Charles would be like, so is he going to live? And the sergeant would be like, well, that's really difficult to determine at this particular juncture. Like, he's in extremely critical condition. And... Charles would go on and he'd be like, well, can he talk? Well, can he see? Can you tell him this? And I had intended to actually read these conversations, but I actually wanted to encourage you guys to go and get the book and and read the book. Also, I forgot the book at home. So Um, there's that. So there is that. Let me tell you one thing. What I won't be doing is reading the book. No, it's fucking difficult for me to get some, like, to get through some of these parts. But um, 
he would actually go on and in these conversations with um, different, well, 90% of it was with Sergeant Hofdahl, but he would go on and he would actually blame Marie. He would go on and say, now I, I had decided that I was going to kill David and I'd been thinking about it for a couple of weeks. So what I was going to do is I was going to put him in this room. And this is where he actually talks about like the other two motel rooms. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, I was going to burn David in this one. So then I was going to have my stuff in this room. But if that one was too close or somebody recognized me, then I could go to this other hotel like before he fucking skips out well he would go on and be like well you know it's all marie's fault that i had to burn my kid and he would be like yeah he would be like well the whole time that i was in prison she would never ever let me see my son and then john okay so Mm. the now it's john's fault yes now it's john's fault because i'm a fuckwit of a human being he would be like well you know i feel really ripped off because marie would never let me see my son while i was in lockup and then john got to spend all this time with my son and there's really just no undoing all the things john did with my son well it's not that he it's not that even that john even did anything bad it was that for two years, somebody else raised his boy and raised him in a manner that differentiated from the way that he intended. Because he had rules. Oh, fuck. Oh, God. Oh, God. He had to, like, listen to adults. What yeah. the fuck? Oh, my so, God. He would go on and be like, well, I knew that if I got in trouble again and that I was going to if I was going to be locked up, that Marie would never bring Davy to be with me. He would never bring him like bring him to. Um, to see me so I would be without my son again and and John and Marie would raise him however they wanted (laughs) and then it was you know I I had intended to kill myself but then I lost the nerve or I lost the courage so then I just turned around and I ran back in to save my kid which of all the things that didn't happen that didn't happen the most the very most all of the most. Because you were probably gone before the fire caught completely, you dumb son of a bitch. Yeah, so there's, like, in this book, he actually, it it paraphrases many of the conversations that he had. But in all of them, he wanted to know whether or not Davy was going to live or die. Okay? That was, like, the big push for each of his phone calls. So he would call multiple times you know, a day or, you know, like anonymously, right? Did I get some that of them, right? Some of them, yes. So sometimes he would call and just be like, oh, hey, yo, I'm a concerned citizen from Laguna Beach. And I just want to know if that kid's gonna live. Other times he'd be like, oh, I was a paramedic on the scene, or I happened to be in the the ambulance while they were taking Davy to the burn unit. And I just wanted to know if he was okay. And that's I was when- staying in that hotel when that poor boy got burned. Is yep. he okay? Is that kid going Mike it. You go to the prom with me. Miss <laughs> Davis. Miss Davis. That's all I understand. I think I'm actually wearing my uh, my Canaan Coyote shirt today, too. Oh, I saw you in a picture of it last night, and I was like, God damn it, I need one of those. That's fucking a tan. West- a tan. Fucking tan. Fucking tan. Um, I have to admire my jersey real quick since I don't wear mine. I can't handle jerseys. They're too fucking hot. I don't like the way they feel on my skin. No, that's why it hangs on the wall. It's weird. So somewhere in some weird evidence closet somewhere, somewhere, is a bunch of recorded phone calls that 
would have been had between Sergeant and Charles and him repeatedly asking about his son. And I don't think he really gave a fuck whether or not his son lived. It was more along the lines of, is Marie going to suffer till David's last breath? Is that little kid actually going to die? Because that was his ultimate goal. I'm going to make her suffer like she made me suffer. He, he, You're the dumbass that went to jail, to prison, wherever the fuck he went right? for two years. Like, fucking right? don't make other people suffer for being decent humans and raising their child and not going. And that was his big thing is, ultimately, he wanted to make Marie suffer with the death of David. And so, for him to call repeatedly and want to know how David was doing... It's not because he gave a shit whether or not his son was going to live. He was hoping his son would die. So she could suffer. Yes. Now, before going to their room for the night, Marie and John had gowned up one last time and gone in to see David. Again, Marie spoke softly to her son. She let him know that they were there, that she was there, that John was there. And that everything was going to be okay and that he was going to be okay too. Now, David could only respond by turning his head to his mom and nodding and letting her know that he understood that way. Now, his eyes were still swollen shut and the doctors were sure that he was going to have his sight when the swelling was reduced. But he could have been blinded for life. At this point, they don't have any idea. And they didn't know if he was going to be a mute. There was no guarantee that his throat or lungs would actually recover from their burns either. They did know that he was able to hear. And that was the best part was that he would listen carefully and do his best to do whatever was asked of him. And that it was almost as if he knew. Whoa. It was almost as if he knew. (laughs) David. (laughs) Do you know? Do you even know? Jesus. All right. It was as if David knew that listening to the instructions was what his life depended on, and it truly did. Marie and John were escorted from the hospital to the hotel by several different police. Marie said that she doesn't remember sleeping that night, but she did remember the dawn of the next morning. She recalled that had it been in New York, it would have been gray, cold, and shitty and slushy. She woke up to a bright sunrise and a blue sky. There was no noise of the busy Brooklyn streets. There were flowers blooming everywhere. She said that she knew things were going to be okay because there were no screeching tires, no yelling, and no sirens. Sirens. In this moment of serene peace, Marie prayed. This was not a common practice for her. She was not a woman of religion. Um, Mass in Catholic Church every now and again as a child was her scope of worship. She prayed numbly. She stumbled through her prayer. She prayed as hard for David to live as she did for him to die. To end his suffering, Marie had began to cry as though, er, Marie had began to cry as she thought of her ghost-like son, white, swollen son, lying in that hospital bed. Marie would ask for one thing of God and then demanded another. She was confused, scared, and angry in ways that she never imagined. Early that morning, police had volunteered to come back to the hotel to retrieve Marie and John and escort them back to the hospital. The chief resident at UCI, Dr. Robert Miller, had taken Marie into a private room to discuss and explain what was to come in the near future for David in the next few critical hours. Dr. Miller went on to describe the scope of David's burns. 90% of his body was gone. He said they were doing their best to save David's life, but there were zero guarantees. None. 
I'm not sure what you mean. What is a third degree burn? Marie had no idea. Dr. Miller drew in a sharp breath before he spoke. This is a quote of what Dr. Miller said to her. A third degree burn is the most serious burn a person can receive. If David had a second degree burns, that would mean the fire had only burned away part of the skin. The bottom layers would still be intact. The skin would heal itself. A third degree burn means every layer is gone, Marie. It has been burned clear down past the fat. The skin is an amazing thing. It can renew and replenish itself in a lot of cases, but not this one. The hair follicles are gone. Every bit of tissue is seared away. The skin cannot replace itself, Marie. It cannot heal on its own. Fun story, uh, side story. My armpit is burned where my burn is, except the part where your hair grows. That is the only <laughs> true. fucking part that didn't burn. Like it burned second degree, but I didn't third degree there. So I still have armpit hair in my right arm, which is a question I get asked a lot. <laughs> do, do you grow hair there? Yeah, because it's the only fucking part that didn't get a third degree burn. <laughs> it's right here, this little patch of fur. <laughs> It's not very big. Like, it's not the whole thing, but there's a little patch there. Anyway, Marie had envisioned David's skin being eaten away by fire as the doctor spoke to her. She could hear the words, and she nodded her head to show that she was, in fact, listening to him. Marie thought of the hotel room engulfed in flames, a fiery coffin. She began to shake and tremble. She stared at Dr. Miller, who looked helplessly back at her. He apologized, stood, and walked out of the room. Marie sat stunned, and John was trying to console her by wrapping his arms around her shoulders, and this is when Marie's brain flew into an unexplained rage. Not necessarily unexplained, but just kind of, but kind of unexpected. Yeah. Like, she was sitting there, calm, cool, collected, and then she fucking snaps. How? How could he do this to his own son? So John kind of jumps back at this point, and he's like, oh, fuck, here it is. Here was where the woman loses her mind. And this was, you know, John simply just tried to hold Marie while she was wrapping her brain around the evil that Charles had inflicted on the boy. So the head nurse, Sue Martinez, comes into the into the room shortly after and she grabs Marie and she said, it's been a hell of a night, but David's doing a lot better than we ever dreamed. And Marie's just sitting there staring at her. She's like, really? She's like, yep. And... So at this point, Marie's both bewildered and excited, and it took her a minute to even speak. The So Sue Martinez actually takes her into the next room so that they can get her dressed, and um, she can go in and see her critical son. She turned to Marie and she let her know, like, hey, we're not out of the woods. There's This is not done by a long shot, but if, but if he's doing better now, so much better, you know, we might be headed in the right direction. Um, she said one of the things that they hated the most was not knowing his name. So it was a really big day when she had actually, Marie had actually called in and they gave, she gave his name. Sue went on to tell Marie how the police had been monitoring their phones. And the day that she called, the detective had scribbled down the name David on a piece of scrap paper and shoved it at the nurses. Sue had run out of the room and given it to another nurse named Jerry. And Jerry was the nurse that was overseeing David at that at that time and she said see if his name is david so she reached down and jerry asked the little boy is your name david and he got all excited and nodded his head so at that point he was no longer john doe he was no longer the burned boy he was david the news had washed over every floor through the hospital the staff had gone through whispering the name his name is david his name is david you see marie 
This is what the nurse was actually saying to Marie. You see, Marie, a name makes you a person in these cases. He had a real name that somebody had given him the day that he was brought into the world. Hearing your own name can brighten your spirits, and it is certainly and it certainly did this for his. But he needed more than just somebody to know his name. We were so relieved and happy when we knew that you were coming. It's easy for a burn victim or any sick person to give up and die. We've seen people with much less serious burns give up and pass on. In fact, they can actually will themselves to die, and they do. We can do nothing to save them at that point. But David, he works so hard to cooperate. He works so hard every day. He fights so hard even when he's in terrible pain. Your presence here makes such a difference. Marie almost laughed at Sue in that moment. Oh, he cooperates, does he? His will is strong, is it? Sister, you don't know the half of it. His will is so strong that I thought it would kill us both. So there, at one point in time, Charles had actually been arrested. Remember when he was arrested in 1978 for the Mm -hmm. Czech forgery and shit? So while he was away, he was taken for the checks and money orders. And he was forging them both to try and buy that second laundromat yeah yeah well he got hemmed up for that and he did go to jail now marie at the time only had david and she decided that while charles was away she was gonna like take on this whole new approach of parenting right so she had actually decided that they were going to go for a nice dinner at this little italian bistro Mm -hmm. well david had this little car that he wanted to take with him that he called his wheelie and he was bound and determined to take this fucking car thing with him and so marie keeps telling him like no this is not the time and place to take this car with you you don't need your wheelie well you don't tell david no because he wasn't told no hardly ever so he threw a goddamn fit i mean like a fit of epic proportion to where he like kicked and screamed marie made him leave the the toy it carried on into the restaurant so she took the toy and threw it away and then drug him out of the restaurant nice they get to the house david continues to scream i mean bloody fits of rage Mm -hmm. she's like fuck it go ahead go on with your badass self just keep on crying so she said that year she threw a lot of toys away (laughs) and that was her thing like if you're gonna act like that when i tell you no if that's how you're gonna act i'm gonna i'm gonna start throwing all your shit away she's my hero So she said that a lot of toys were actually thrown away that year, but that this is where she would reinstate herself as a parent. Now that Charles wasn't there to smack her around if she said no or let him cry, this is now where she's like, fuck it, cry. Guess what? It's my circus now, bitch. Yep. So, yeah, he he ended up missing a lot of toys that year, but she finally got a grip, um, more of a grip on her kid. David had just been given his whirlpool bath when Marie and John started gowning up to go in and visit him. Marie finally saw what the doctors and nurses had been seeing. There was no ointment on him, no protective netting, just his small naked burned body. She could see the blood cursing through his veins and she could see the muscles contracting and expanding. She could see bone. Marie had seen the... I'm going to throw up. Marie had seen the extent of his injuries for the first time. There had been no buffers this time. It caused her to retch. Nurse Jerry was tending to the boy. She asked David to move his arm a little. Slowly and painfully, David moved his arm. Burned and twisted, he he lifted. 
Good job, Davy. Nurse Sue came in and praised him some more. Now I need you to turn on your side a little. It's time for the good stuff, Davy. Again, the burned little boy did as he was asked. Slowly and painfully, he struggled to his side. Sue checked all the intravenous tubes and connected that were connected to the boy. He had been given his pain medication to ease his suffering before they dressed his wounds. Dr. Ockhauer came in and into the room to check on David, too. He asked the boy to bend his leg, and David obliged. Marie was happy that he that she had always been hard on David for moments just like this. She was happy that she had thrown all those toys away, for in this very moment, he was strong. his strong will was keeping him alive, and despite the immense pain he felt, he was fighting. Mommy's here for your David. Oops. Mommy is here for you, David. I'm so proud of you. You're doing everything so good. You were such a brave little boy. David had turned his head towards his mother, straining a little bit. He turned back to lie still because he knew that his mother was in the room and he knew his mother's presence. That was enough for now. During the first 48 hours in the hospital, it was no secret that everybody in the hospital who, who knew about David expected him to die. That <clears throat> that did not stop the medical team from scrambling around the clock to save him. Each time David had to be bathed, it was a laborious task. There were numerous members of the team that had to come every, like, well, fuck me, <laughs> right? Well, fuck me dead and bury me pregnant. I don't know. All Shit. right. <laughs> yeah, I got it. Your wish is my command. There were numerous members of the team that were required every time that he had to be bathed. He had to be temporarily temporarily taken off of his ventilator, shifted into a hydro lift where all the needles were being protected as they placed him in a solution of betadine, antiseptic, and Clorox bleach. This was to help cut down on the threat of infection while the germs were being killed that were attacking his body. If they didn't, he would certainly die. After his bath, they would reconnect his ventilator, the tubes that reached way down into his lungs, delivering oxygen to his damaged, damaged organs. Um, let me, uh, tell you what happens, you know, but let me tell people what happens in the whirlpool bath and Mm -hmm. why it is so fucking horrifying. (laughs) It's because we, we explained the third degree burns earlier. So you know that you have no skin at this point. You're at the layers below skin. Now you've got to go sit in a whirlpool bath to try to, um, get rid of, everything like any extra skin that was burned on any infection that might be there whatever they have to go in and they literally have to scrub it off with a sponge and it's really raw where you're at so this is why they have so many people helping out because I had to have three and I only had two percent of my body burned I had to have three people in there helping me and I can't even imagine what this little guy was going through it makes me not happy Anyway. Yeah. Well, and the reasoning for the visiting hours, the way that they are, at least when I was in the burn unit, is because they do all the bad shit to you when it's not visiting hours so your family doesn't have to see all the shit you go through. At least that's what they did to me. It was fun. Murphy's Law. Now... For those of you who are unfamiliar with Murphy's Law, if anything can go wrong, it will. And it certainly did in these times. Those were the days in the very beginning where everything was very touch and go. David developed a very serious, dangerous systemic infection. His body went into a stress syndrome state. 
His kidney, liver, and intestines were all trying to shut down. His body was in such a tattered state. They needed to start the skin grafts, but they couldn't do so until they stabilized him. But without skin grafts, the work to stabilize him was pretty much useless, and he would die. Morphine and Demerol were dumped into David to dull his pain. He drifted in and out of consciousness, and the medical team had to put fluids into his body to replenish everything that had been lost in the fire. Unfortunately, the new fluid caused so much swelling, it caused his, his body to balloon up, and numerous cuts and nicks had to be made into the surface to relieve all that pressure. Doctors were scared that David's kidneys were going to stop and stay stopped, that his entire body would go into terminal shock and let go. If you are unaware, there are actually three stages of shock. Stage one, also called compensated or non-progressive. Stage two, which is decompensated and progressive. And the third stage, which is called irreversible. In the first stage, when um, in stage one of shock, when low blood flow is detected, a number of systems are activated in order to maintain and restore perfusion. The result is that the heart beats faster, the blood vessels throughout the entire body become smaller in diameter, and the kidneys work to retain fluid in the circulatory system. In stage two of shock, these methods are compensate these methods of compensation begin to fail. The systems of the body <laughs> The systems Aww, uh, <laughs> you get all that. The systems of the body are no longer able to improve perfusion any longer, and the patient's symptoms reflect that. Oxygen deprivation in the brain causes the patient to become fu be fused. Become confused and disoriented. In stage three of shock, the length of time that the poor perfusion has existed makes it to where permanent it takes a permanent toll on the body's organs and tissue. The heart's functioning continues to spiral downward. The kidneys usually shut down completely. Cells in the organs and tissue out throughout the body are injured and dying. This is the end point stage of shock in uh, stage three where patient dies. Marie wanted so badly for the team to know David as she did. The boy with the nose wrinkle, the brown hair that hated Brussels sprouts and spinach. The funny boy with the wide smile. But his beautiful brown hair was now gone. His nose, and nose, lips, and tiny fingers were charred and gone. At this point, they knew his name, but was still the third-degree burn victim in room 3B. He was charts, reports, and clinical readings. While Marie knew these brilliant people were hardworking and committed to David, they didn't know that child in the bed. They didn't know his personality like she did. What would David say if he could speak right now? He could hear them. He could hear the whispers. He was frightened by the silence. He was still a, a little six-year-old boy. Marie felt so helpless knowing that David needed to be held and couldn't be. She tried to put herself in his shoes and represent him since he could not. David would have a scope done on his bronchial tubes into his lungs. There were two new doctors in the room for another, from another medical center to perform the scope to determine what kind of damage they were facing. Dr. Ackauer explained to Marie that while David was in that burning hotel room that he breathed in great quantities of carbon monoxide, cyanide, and other toxic fumes. The burning carpet and other synthetic materials in the room, like the wallpaper, had created a horrible environment of poison 
Because being burned alive isn't bad enough. Let's breathe in some poison from yeah, the walls no, literally, and carpets and shit. Literally everything in there from like the fucking polyester blended curtains to the fucked off. Like, you know you you know oh, what yeah. kind of bedding I'm talking about. That like you can see the fucking plastic stitching in it uh-huh. and shit. I mean, this is the 80s. So literally every single thing in that room when it burned turned into fucking poison. And like, then mixed together. And then mixed All together. The so it either poisons. burned it either burned into his body infused with what little bit of skin he had, or now it's fucking settled into his lungs and killing him that Jesus way. Jesus Christ. Yes. By all accounts, David should not have lived past the fire or the poison air. If his lungs were as damaged as they suspected, it would be more difficult to save him than they thought. Marie watched from the hallway. And she could tell by their faces the prognosis wasn't good. There was soot and singe inside the bronchial tubes. The soft pink lining of his lungs was burned away. In a waiting room, Marie sat with her sister Sandra, who had flown in to support her and John. She sat there, dazed, shocked, a million different threats running through her mind. Charles had not been apprehended. There were police, news crews, and people from the paper and magazines everywhere. The tragedy had become front page across many, many states. They lined the corridors. They wanted an update on the little boy whose daddy tried to burn him to death. Marie mumbled to her family that she didn't think he was going to make it. And at this point, she didn't think he should make it. What kind of future would he have burned like that? What a horrible fucking thing to say. I know. I mean, she's not wrong. Yeah. The three sat discussing the terrible state that David was in and his hor- and his horrific future. Marie had started to fall apart when a, when a police officer entered the room to interrupt her. The officer advised that there was somebody here to see her, a couple that it had a couple that had experience with burns, a man and his wife. The man had been badly The man had been badly burned in an accident just months earlier. Marie declined to meet with the couple. She was flustered and she panicked when she heard that the man was a burn victim. She didn't want to see anyone, especially a man that had been burned. There were too many things that were running through her mind. She was already frazzled. She wasn't ready to see somebody that had been burned. She wasn't ready to see what kind of destruction lay ahead for Davy. Please, not now. Maybe another time. Send them away, was Marie told the officer. Her sister Sandra cut in. She insisted that Marie see these people. She told her sister that she needed to talk to someone, somebody that knew what she was going through and what they... And what lay ahead for her? Somebody that could support her. Marie was angry at this, and she jumped at her sister and turned around. What do you know? This isn't your kid. You have no clue. You got a lot of nerve. Marie basically threw up all of the basic, like, defense mechanism phrases that you could. And she raged around the room for a little bit before she was cooling off, and she turned to John. Now, every guy ever that's been in a situation where their girl is fucked up and angry knows just how dangerous this could have been but he was like i really think this is a good idea i'm sure he gave her her cool down time oh of course (laughs) but he said eventually me and sandra have to go back to new york and you're gonna need people and so she agreed but who did she need like what people without consulting her the staff had actually reached out to a rabbi they saw the last name rothenberg and they thought ah, oh, we'll call her clergy so the rabbi shows up and goes in to see marie and marie's like um i'm a catholic 
And he's like, ah, well, have a good day. And off he goes. That's my best impression of a Jewish rabbi. Have a good day. Have a good day. I See, just thought of... I, I have no idea what the fuck I just said. I just thought of that puppet guy. What's his name? Oh, fuck. Everybody's <laughs> going to be saying it now. We haven't done this for a while. We haven't played this game for a oh, while. Oh, shit. Guess what I'm thinking, only but, I don't know. Yeah, he does the ventriloquist, and he has the one puppet that's like, oh, have a good day. <laughs> I'm jalapeno on a stick <laughs> oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he what does the him? fucking yeah i, I kill you yeah oh, i can fuck. see his face but i can yeah so can i his... shit what is his name i don't know fuck and the the other the old man walter uh-huh fuck yeah jalapeno on a stick have a good day <laughs> i am not having a good day all right i gotta google it or else i'm gonna go nuts jeff dunham there you go and he's got the little fucking no <laughs> left turn, <laughs> right turn, Clyde. So anyway, the rabbi comes, and after he realizes that Marie is not Jewish, he bails. So they call a priest. Now the priest comes in, and he was so afraid to even go into David's room, he stood in the doorway, performed last rites, was like, "Good luck," and bounced. Damn. Yeah. So at this point, Marie wondered, you know, what kind of people do I really want to come in my life? How long are they going to stay? And how long would it be before they leave too? If a priest, come on, dude, if a man of the fucking cloth comes in is like, oh my God, hope to God you go to heaven, see ya, gives last rites and fucking bounces out, you kind of have to wonder who really is going to stick around. As a man on the cross. Of the, of the cross, cross or, or in your, in your case, case a man on, on the cross. cross you got what i was trying to fumble <laughs> fuck through there fuck oh my god pray for the health of lance harbor <laughs> oh god or in your case i'm at asalam lake okay go back watch varsity blues maybe i'll do that today too i don't Ooh, know yet. i think that i'll do that tonight or tomorrow or maybe something. i will maybe i will um so this is when Marie Rothenberg would meet two angels that she so desperately needed in her life. Ken and Judy Curtis were escorted into the room by the officer, and Marie had advised the officer to stay with her to stay with her at all times, not to leave her alone with these strangers. Marie would not discover until much later just how important these people would be in her life. Now, two people would come in that would never leave. They brought hope, joy, and courage to her and her son. Ken Curtis had been burned in a very serious industrial fire while working in a local bowling alley. They had been spreading a finish onto the floor that happened to be highly flammable. What they didn't know and what the creator, like the maker of this finish, they were like, oh yeah, you can put heat on it. It's totally fine. It'll help it dry faster. Not the case. So he's putting the finish on this, on this floor, this highly flammable shit, and they're actually putting heat on it, which turned the finish into chemical fire. He was engulfed and started to burn. Now, in a panic, Ken had started running towards other people for help. A woman had tackled him and was able to roll him out and smother the flames. He had suffered third-degree deburns. Third-degree burns. Deburns. 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 I had something (laughs) clever to say. I fucking... Nope. It went. Nope. There it goes. So, he had suffered third-degree... Fuck. (laughs) De burns, de burns, de burns, de burns are coming. De burns. <laughs> Jesus. All right. 
A woman had tackled him and was able to smother out the flames. He had suffered third-degree burns on much of his body. Marie had been afraid to look at the scarred man, expecting a hideous face, twisted, turned, awful. Surprised at how good he looked, she blurted out, You haven't been burned! I like that. Like, not, hi, how are you? Hi, my name's Marie. You haven't been burned. No. Well, Ken simply smiled, and they all sat down, and he greeted her with a hello. Hello, Marty. (laughs) They all sat together, and Ken started to peel away at the skin-tight layers of his compression clothing to show her the scars. Marie had gasped. They were smooth, they were flat, and they were firm, pink and silver. The scars ran up and down his arms and legs, onto his hands and up his neck, but they weren't ugly or dreadful as she thought they would be. Ken took the scared mother by her hand and asked if it would be okay if they prayed for her. John and Sandra were equally as taken back by the request of prayer. They all joined hands, bowed their head, and prayer filled the room. Judy spoke directly to God as if she knew him personally, and this was not something Maury had seen but been... Oh, wow. There are so many words that aren't like the other ones. (laughs) Now, Marie had never been instructed to address God himself. Always the saints, maybe Mary, but never the big man himself. Marie often found herself angry at God, and for a long time, and especially now, where was God when she was being beaten? Where was God when she was suffering? Where had been God when her son was burned? And now, where was God as her son lie dying in the next room? Did you check the pantry? It seemed as though Marie's prayers had gone unanswered, and that angered her even more. We need your help, Lord. Little Davy is burned very badly, and he needs you to heal him. Please, Lord, heal him as you promised. Be with Marie and her family and friends. Give them the strength to face whatever your will is for Davy's life. Help them handle this thing. Thank you for our son, Jesus. Amen. That was a quote. That was the, the prayer. Marie felt every word powerfully in her body when Judy Curtis had finished. Marie was trembling. It was very strange for her, an unknown feeling. Judy and Ken hugged Marie and bid her farewell. Marie felt hope for the first time. For the first time in several days at the UCI burn unit, Marie admitted that she was a basket case. Marie was escorted back and forth to and from the hospital to the hotel many days in a trance. She spoke to doctors and nurses, but found it difficult to concentrate until now. Ever since Judy and Ken came into her life, she felt more at peace. Marie felt that if she could survive her childhood, she could survive this too. She had survived the seven years of hell that was a marriage to Charles that ended in attempted murder of David. She was not certain she would be able to live through the crisis of her son, not knowing where Charles was and if he might hurt them again. Marie was in a constant state of turmoil and fear. She wanted her son to live and grow up as a normal boy. This would never happen for David. She prayed for his plight to plight end. Take him from his horrible place and hurt. She staggered between, give my son life and take him home. A priest had once overheard Marie in the chapel asking God why he didn't just let David die. The priest scolded the priest. He's a priest (laughs) priest. (laughs) Damn. The priest scolded Marie. He told her... Oh, shit. (laughs) You tell that priest. 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 (laughs) He told the mother... That you don't get to tell God what to do. You simply have to 
ask God what he thinks is best and trust God's plan. Only then would she be able to handle anything that happens to David. Marie prayed for God to take David to heaven, if there was one. It had been a place where little children do not suffer. God's will be done, the priest advised. Marie constantly thought, better off dead, he's been through enough. How could I really love him if I beg him to stay or if I want him to die? Marie had no idea what to do or what to think. There were doctors and nurses with painkillers and tranquilizers in the burn unit for trauma, but what about traumas to the heart? They could take care of the trauma to the body, but what would happen to an What would happen to him emotionally? Ken and Judy Curtis returned to the hospital to see Marie. They had brought her a Bible and they discussed prayer, God, and if he heard the prayers. Jody spoke, Jody, Judy spoke of the day they knew they were meant to be in Marie and David's lives and told her about how they'd heard the story on the radio and they knew that they had to come. They arrived with no idea about how to find the right building, but they ran into a nurse who knew right where David was and where Marie was as well. Another nurse had spoken to them into the lobby of the burn unit, not knowing, not allowing them to go into the corridor because of the risk to David. Once Judy and Ken told the nurse who they were and why they were there, she took them straight in. Marie had wondered how they had made it so far into the unit that day. Ken told Marie how they had prayed from the whole way there, from the car to the parking lot, into the waiting room, and before seeing her again and praying yet again in the waiting room, Marie began to cry and asked how she was supposed to pray for David. Judy and Ken embraced Marie and began to speak to the Lord yet again. Just ask God to make a decision for David's life. That Marie did not want him to suffer. That Davy was a child of God and that they and that he promised to never deliver anything to his children that they could not handle. Judy ended her prayer by placing David's life in God's hands. The three of them had donned their gowns and dressed to go see David. As the nurses dressed his wounds, applied the sylvadine ointment, and checked his IVs, David moaned and rocked back and forth from the pain. David's legs had been split from hip to ankle to release the pressure from the swelling fluids. Marie had tensed up, worried and angry, and Ken went on to notice. He embraced Marie and hugged her gently and told her, God's child, Marie, he is in good hands. And though she had fought their advice from the beginning, she had relaxed and told Davy that it was ever, that everything was going to be all right. Yet, this time, she had started to believe it. The Buena Park police stood guard outside David's room 24-7, and another officer monitored the phones in the command center across the hall. There were police with Marie everywhere she went. Still, Charles was on the loose, and no one knew what he might do. Marie had lived in fear for weeks, not knowing where Charles was, what he might do, and without the Buena Park Police Department, she didn't know if she had survived, if she would have survived those tense weeks. What she would later find out is that police guarding her and John had been doing so on a volunteer basis. Aww. Yeah, they did everything on their own time. So while the police department was searching high and low for Charles during their regular shifts, all the officers alternated guarding the hospital and the hotel on their time. <clears throat> During this time, Detective Pekowitz had called from the New York Police Department with concerning information. Apparently, the New York Police Department had contacted Charles's girlfriend and verified that Charles had flown to California with a great deal of money, 15K as a matter of fact, that he had supposedly saved and he was saving for a vacation after his relocation. Hmm. Wait, what? What about a relocation? 
All of this was supposedly saved while he was working for Lu Chow's restaurant. Sadly, this was just another large lie in Charles's story. The new manager for Lu Chow's had verified that Charles had, in fact, been fired for theft. The fear for both Buena Park and New York police departments had been confirmed. Charles had all the money he would need to stay on the run for a very long time. And even though there were bulletins with Charles' face on them across the nation, nothing had turned up. The NYPD had managed to find the serial number on the traveler's checks that he had purchased. $13,000. Damn. Mm-hmm. So he had two k in cash and another 13k in traveler's checks. Marie began to think more and more about where she could help them find Charles, where he would be located, and they could arrest him, placing him behind bars where he belonged. If Charles were in fact in San Francisco, he would probably be at the Moreau Residence Club. Buena Park Police Department sent two of their officers, dispatched them immediately to that location. The officers asked the clerk in the registration if they had seen Charles. Fortunately, the clerk had remembered renting a room to him in the last few days. Charles had flown down to San Francisco, excuse me, had flown up to San Francisco the morning after he burned David. Why did I say it like that? Up! (laughs) Up! 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 Up. All right. He had flown up to San Francisco the morning after he burned David. Charles spent $320 for a room, number 209, at the Monroe. Charles had mentioned to the clerk that he had business at the YMCA. The clerk had told the officers this, but all the while, that day, while the office, oh man, all the while, comma, shatner the shit out of this. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just, then I envisioned William Shatner reading it and it got even funnier yep see there it is charles had spent 320 dollars for a room at the monroe room 209 charles had also mentioned to the clerk that he had business at the ymca the clerk had told officers that day that he might be there as well but all the while while they were talking charles had been spotted across the street from the monroe and he had watched the police talk to the clerk Oh, shit. Right. Police had surveillance on the hotel for 24 hours following that day, but Charles did not return. He knew the police were only steps behind him at this point, and the YMC... The... (laughs) YMC way... The YMCA had been heavily watched as well. Every police officer in San Francisco had basically been told every gruesome detail about the crime. And at this point, they had that black and white photo that they carried around in every single squad car. They had made copies. The search for Charles had become very personal at this point. The police had taken to the street with a fury seldom had ever seen. Now, it was one thing to be a murderer, okay? Mm -hmm. It's quite another to try and murder a kid and it's quite another to try and burn your own fucking kid to death mm-hmm. eight days after charles tried to kill david on a thursday charles had seen a police officer in front of the ymca officers approached charles and quietly asked him do you know why we are here charles nodded and said yes i do it was mentioned that charles looked relieved when he was taken into custody his run had come to an end Charles was then taken into the San Francisco Hall of Justice. The BPPD was contacted and Sergeant Halfdell would be the one to execute the warrant to return Charles to Southern California. Due to a mistake in the paperwork, Charles was not under Rothenberg and the sergeant and another officer had to literally walk floor by floor looking for Charles. Sergeant Halfdell was found on the seventh floor floor when he spotted Charles. He walked up to the bars and said, 
Hello there, Charles. Do you know who I am? Charles did know who he was. He had spoken to this man several times since his son had been burned, and he knew Hafdel's voice. How was my son? Hafdel said that David was still in critical condition and that he was alive. Hafdel told Charles what kind of damage David was facing. Charles seemed less interested in David. Then he turned his questions to Marie. He wanted to know who came to L.A. with her and had the stories been in the papers. Before the officer from San Francisco could take Charles to be processed for transport, Hafdel asked to speak with him alone. The two went into the back of a stuffy room where Charles started asking more and more questions about David. In confidence, Charles told Hoftel that there was $13,000 in his room and that he wanted the money to go to Marie, a room at the YMCA, not the Monroe. Charles had gotten room 821 at the YMCA so that he had two places if he needed to hide. Uh-huh. The officers went into both rented rooms and removed all of David's personal belongings, photos, clothes, etc. Charles had over 20 pictures of David and the broken family taped to the wall near his bed. Nick. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, a freeze had initially been placed on the... Placed. 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 a freeze. A freeze had been placed on the money that Charles wanted to give to Marie. While there was no current evidence that the money was stolen, it was still being investigated by Judge Reinheimer. And he wanted everything to be sorted out before the money was released. The nationwide manhunt... Manhunt. The manhunt. Oh my god, Agnes, are you aware that that manhunt is over? They finally got that fucking guy. Oh my god, did you see his leopard print jeggings? <laughs> I don't know if you know, but I think his last name was Love. <laughs> That's that Warm love me up pillow. a scone. Give me some coffee. Ooh, a scone sounds good. I know. A freeze had been okay. A freeze had been placed on the money that Charles wanted to wanted to give to Marie. There was no current evidence that really said the money was stolen. However, before it was released, the judge wanted everything to be sorted out. Now the nationwide manhunt for Charles was finally over, and the man was going to pay for his crime. There were interviews with the police. Oh, policed. <laughs> Put a D on it, baby. Just policed them. There wasn't. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, Agnes. Why well, have fucked up? All I'm right. trying to think of somebody that used to put a T on the end of everything. And I can't think of who it was or what the words were that they said, but it drove me insane. Saint. I, there, I actually oh, God. remember that shit. Well, did you saint it over there? There was an interview with the police psychologist that was conducted, and Charles discussed at length his crime. He admitted that he was going to kill himself after he set fire to David, but he said he got scared and couldn't go through with it. But, you know, the whole suicide thing was just too much for him. He said that he didn't know why he had to hurt David the way he did. He went on to blame Marie for his crimes, and Charles admitted that he did want to take David away from her. Mm-hmm. Well, we mentioned this at the beginning. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons I did it, Charles said. And he went on to say that he wanted to kill himself, but he didn't... He wanted to kill himself, but he didn't want to leave David without a father. That's why he decided to take his son with him. He didn't want David to suffer. So why didn't he burn his stupid ass in there with this kid? Exactly. Come on, man. Well, 
he didn't want to leave his son without a father, and that that's another reason that he wanted to see his son die. Charles advised that he had been thinking about this for quite some time. Now, Marie was sick in her hotel room with bronchitis when the officers came in to tell her the good news that Charles had been arrested. Marie had insisted that before the officers left, she wanted to see him in cuffs. There had to be proof. She wanted to make sure that there was absolutely no way he could come back and hurt her and that he had been put away. The police turned on the TV and showed Marie the news. At this point, the the news was flooding on the airwaves from every direction. It was on the radio. It was on the news. People were going to be printing it in the newspapers the very next day. The New York man that had been accused of setting his six-year-old son on fire in Buena Park had been arrested. It was noted that Charles was wearing a pin on his shirt when he was arrested mm. that said, Kids are special. You're a special asshole. Ugh. So he was wearing that pin on his lapel that said kids are special. At the time of his arrest, the room of the hospital erupted into cheers, laughter, and happiness. Marie knew that the Marie knew that she was going to be okay. She and David were going to be safe. At least they were safe from Charles. Charles told the police that he did not wish to go on trial. He did he all he wanted to do. But they could have seen him. He go on about no trial. What? I'm I, sure that there's people in Louisiana yeah. that just N- that knew everything yeah, that yeah, fucking, yeah. they're like, oh, Focho, <laughs> like shit. As if it, my dad is somewhere being like, all right, kid, I right, then <laughs> she I done told you. him all twice. <laughs> what? <laughs> Fuck. All right. At least they were safe from Charles. Charles told the police that he did not wish to go on trial. He wanted to plead guilty and get it over with. He had no reason to fight. And that, ladies and gents, is where we stop for today. Thank Jesus, because I about throwed up again. Join us next week for the continuation of David, the boy that fire couldn't kill. And in the meantime, wear your seatbelts and uh, stay, stay out, out of chalk lines. lines. Goodbye. Goodbye.